My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happen to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. This week, we're exploring one of my favourite ideas, which is that secondhand is not second best. In the past, there was probably a bit of a stigma around old stuff. So whereas vintage was always cool for those in the know, until fairly recently, plain secondhand wasn't always so welcome. I think it had sort of, I don't know, like icky connotations. I remember going shopping with a girlfriend once who was like, ew, other people's clothes, gross. She really just didn't understand the appeal. But this is changing. 30% of millennials have shopped secondhand in the last three months. And every time I look at Instagram, it's just full of stylish people wearing secondhand designer gear and shouting about it. So where do they get it? I do have friends who found amazing pieces on eBay and Gumtree, but I've personally never had much luck there. Have you guys? I'd love to hear. Actually, do. Can you please tag me in your stories on social media? Because I'm always interested to know where people find their vintage and secondhand good stuff. In the past, I bought a few things in my time from designer consignment stores. But I tend to think they're better in Europe. Again, you tell me if anyone has some awesome recommendations, please do let me know. But I'm a market trawler. I'm sure you've heard me say this before. I love markets and I do find some incredible diamonds lurking in the rough. But what if you're not up for that? What if an op shop or a market mission is just not your cup of tea? That's where the new luxury secondhand sites come in. And they're booming, led in the US by The Real Real and in France by The Vestiaire Collective. I recorded this episode in Paris late last year, where I went to meet Fanny Moison, who is one of the co-founders of Vestiaire. That's the French re-commerce site that's seeing 30,000 designer label items offered for sale each week by its 6 million strong fashion community. What does that look like? Well, imagine a cross between Net-A-Porter and eBay, with a bit of Instagram thrown in so you can follow and like your favourite sellers. 
it's a consumer to consumer model. I just learned that phrase from Fanny. But what it means is that members sell to each other. And then Vestiaire will step in to advise on market value and to ensure things like photographs are okay. And they also do very intense authenticity checks so that you know you're not buying fakes. This interview is a must for anyone who buys or sells secondhand anywhere. It's a how to make it in fashion episode a tech disruptor episode, and an inspirational woman episode. And you know, I do love one of those. Fanny is a working mammal. She has heaps of great advice on how to make it as a female entrepreneur. And not surprisingly, she also has fantastic style. You should have seen her Celine jumper when we met. Yes, Fanny is super chic. Now, waste is not very chic, is it, my friends? And Fanny talks about not wasting things being common sense, which I loved. It sort of strikes me as quite a French idea, that. I expect you've heard the stat that suggests that the average woman wears just 40% of what's in her wardrobe. But Fanny says we don't have to leave our fashion, as she puts it, sleeping in our wardrobes. Melbourne listeners, Fanny is in town for VAMF, the Virgin Australia Melbourne Fashion Festival this week. So if you get the chance to go and hear her speak, you really ought to take it. But for those of you who can't be there, Wardrobe Crisis Podcast to the rescue. I think you're going to really enjoy meeting Fanny in this interview. Not least because she has the cutest accent. (laughs) Welcome, Fanny. Thank you. I can't pronounce your name. How do I say it? Fanny Moison. Moison. You don't say the T at the end? Encore. Fanny Moison. Fanny Moison. Très bien. Well done. Enchanté. <laughs> Enchanté. <laughs> I have to ask, first of all, we're sitting here in the Vestier head offices in Paris. Mm-hmm. What are you wearing and did it come from Vestier? I'm wearing a Céline um, cashmere sweater from Vestier Collective. Uh, I think I bought it last winter. had a massive crush uh, on the picture and... Uh, I'm a big fan since then. A white shirt from whoever, I can't remember. A pair of acne boots and a, a denim jean again. Are your boots from Vestier? Uh, no, not those ones. What about your handbag? My handbag, which one I'm carrying right now, it is from Vestier. It's a Mark Cross a little... So expensive, Mark Cross. Luggage. I had a great deal. I mean, I found it was uh, 900 uh, euros on the site, which is like half price. Brand new, almost never worn, uh, navy blue. Very cool. Love it. Vestia is actually a really good way of getting a bit of a bargain because you can get these designer things you've had crushes on for less. Not that 900 euros is a bargain, but for less. Yeah. But it's not all about getting a bargain, is it? No, it's not about that only. It's also about finding the piece you missed uh, last season and you're still obsessed with, and that has no price. When you are looking for that particular piece and it's the one that got away, literally. Uh, so then you are able to do anything to get your hands on, a, on that piece. Uh, so in that case, it's not the price. So it's actually, yeah, a mix of... Very different behaviours, Vestia. But it's also inherently sustainable because it we're is. talking about second life, third life, fourth, multiple lives of garments. So Vestia is about reselling. Mm-hmm. Use the word re-commerce. Yeah. I like that word. I've yeah. never heard it before. <laughs> yeah. 
the business is sustainable by heart. So it's literally empowering women and, and men even to uh, let go pieces that you no longer wear or that are just slipping into your wardrobe. So it is by essence a very sustainable business. Um, but these things would not have ended up in landfill because they're precious. They might have. Because what's the point keeping stuff uh, on and on and on and on? And we are in a period of time where people are, I think it's all about less is more and about detoxing and willing to clear out a little bit your head, your mind, your wardrobe, your life. Um, so I think people are embracing that element of making a bit of uh, clear in their life. Actually, we were just downstairs and we were looking at the VIP section and there were many boxes from a client who'd sent 20 boxes from Malta. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and the story was that apparently, I don't know if it was like her clairvoyant or a psychic or somebody had said, you actually have too much baggage emotionally and psychically. You got to clear out your stuff. Yeah. And so, so they're it's clearing a, it's out. A These are people with a lot of it's stuff. It's a therapy. <laughs> Actually, that's weird to me and quite interesting because it just shows that whatever end of the market you're shopping at, even if you're a high-level, rich, luxury shopper, people are still buying stuff that they don't really need to hold on to exactly. and they're still trying to get rid of it. Yeah. Marie Kondo effect. Mm. Have you read that book? No. You know, she's the Japanese declutterer. Okay. It's like a thing people are obsessed with where she says you have to clean out everything yeah, course, so that you yeah. can feel free and more peaceful. Personally, I'm like this. I love like very minimal wardrobes. I don't understand the opposite of the behavior which is holding, keeping stuff and stuff and piles and piles. I mean, how can you deal? I would feel like harassed by all this stuff and and even taking the time in the, every single morning to dress up when you're in that behavior and, and holding stuff. I mean, how can you spend the time searching through your piles and uh, and getting your outfits uh, ready when you have so much you have two children mm -hmm. you just moved to hong kong yes how much stuff did you have to pack to move from london i mean a lot of furniture and, and decoration stuff and so on but my again my wardrobe is very minimal i think i have as much as my husband who's a banker so not much <laughs> in terms of quantity so it's more about quality uh, not saying that i buy luxury piece only but i love I'd rather invest in a very beautiful sweater that I love and cherish than having five that I just don't love or, or less, at least in terms of quality. So it's about less is more and, uh, and about finding your style and what suits you and, uh, and where you feel comfortable in every single day and what makes you happy uh, to grab every morning. So it's about, yeah, knowing yourself and finding the great pieces. Let's talk more about secondhand so you're French, but you were brought up in the south of France. Yes. Where? Marseille or near? No, near Montpellier, in ah. a very small town called Marseillan. Yeah, spent my childhood over very there. Very different to Marseille. Yeah, Marseillan, but uh, yeah, very different, but um, a beautiful place. And then studied in Paris and in Reims. Um, what did you study? Business first. Uh, so did a business school, and then I went to start working for six years in a decoration field and was uh, lacking my love. I'm in love with fashion since my early days because my mom used to have shops in South of France. Some of them were fashion and I grew up in that textile and business because I was behind her, helping her a lot, doing the merchandising, keeping the shop open when she was uh, doing other stuff. So 
I had that into my veins when I was a, a kid, I mean, a teenager. Did you work in those shops? Yeah, a lot. I mean, not as a permanent, uh, I was studying at the time, so, but I spent a lot of time there, all my holidays and, and so on. It's interesting working in shops. My mother ran a clothes shops boutiques in Yorkshire, in Ilkley, where I grew up, and I used to help her and work in the shop when I was about 15. So mum sold quite fabulous, a lot of Belgian things, like... Wow. She's a kind of andamulamista mum. <laughs> she nice. loves those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah. But she used to sell something called Annette Gortz. <laughs> so a little bit asymmetric and a little like bit it. arty. But what I learned from my mum and working in that shop was how women feel when they try things on, what they look for when they shop, how you have to be honest. Because mm -hmm. if you say to someone, buy that thing and they look yeah. bad yeah, and their yeah, friends yeah, don't yeah, love yeah, it, yeah. they're never coming back. Yeah, credibility is uh, ruined. <laughs> what did you learn from working in your mother's stores? I learned uh, being a hard worker first. I think it's uh, I've always seen my both parents being entrepreneurs, working very hard from night till late evening, always in the head, very into their business and so on. So about that passion and that energy you need to have your own uh, own business. And I learned, I think it was the cross rail of, again, doing business in a very inspirational industry because fashion is even if when we were not producing any goods or so on but you do your purchases and when you receive the, the orders you open the uh, the new collection and then you have to style it to merchandise it and so on so it appeals to very different strengths so it's how do you combine this kind of inspirational element you do the right purchases and, and assortment for the shop and how you sell it and how you make the business grow and how you embrace your the client relationship. So it was that kind of mix between, yeah, the creative side and the business side, which I was uh, passionate about. What sort of clothes did your mother's store sell? It was, uh, at the time, it was a bit of um, Dicky NY. It was a bit like street style and uh, a mix, a bunch of things. But so new? New, 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 of course, yeah. But your mother gave you vintage Alaya pieces that you yes, still have? Yes, yes. She was a big... Uh, Herself, a fashion lover, she used to dress, it was the 80s, so with this massive, I remember those massive shoulders, uh, denim um, uh, suit uh, from Alaya. She was very into Alaya, like very strong woman. Like, yeah, bodycon. Yeah. Tough. Yeah, yeah. It was a Tina Turner-ish um, style. Love. Uh, really cool. And she didn't hold on to a lot of pieces except the Alaya ones. Uh, so when she gave me those ones, like... It's a treasure. I would never wear them, but it's reminds me. You can pass me. them on yeah. to your daughters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Hang on a minute. Did you really buy? Did you really buy John Galliano's toothbrushes? I did. Oh my god! <laughs> I did. It I was my stop glory days. <laughs> really? I was working in his own company at the time. He was at Dior. And I was an intern over there and doing any kind of things. And every week, one of my tasks was to go out of the office and buy at the pharmacy next door the same toothbrush every single week. I can't remember the color, actually. I think that we had a, I had a color code uh, to follow and it was the same one every single week. Why does this man so, need a different toothbrush every week? You know, this is fashion's excess in all its greatest <laughs> form, isn't it? <laughs> I love it. But it was... Um, fascinating to be a little close to these big I mean those people they are genius uh, John Gallienus is 
happen very weird things in his life, but he's a real, real creative genius and uh, and his crew and so on and feeling the vibes of that crew. You uh, catch it, don't you? Working yeah. and putting music. I remember he was listening to the, it's a long time ago, the Fujis. I don't remember the, oh, do you yeah? remember this uh, group, music group, the Fujis? He was listening to the Fujis like super loud in the company. So suddenly you're on the phone with a client and there's the Fujis all around <laughs> the place. And the team over there, like, almost dancing and so on. It was really fun. It's really fun in these yeah. offices yeah. too. You brought yeah. it with you. Yeah. Okay, so you had vintage love when you were younger, but your mother sold new fashion. Tell me about secondhand and when you discovered it and also how it's viewed. I'm really interested in this idea of secondhand is not second best, and yet there's still, in certain places, a kind of stigma attached yeah. to it. Not everyone loves the idea of pre-loved or pre-owned which phrases do you use? I use pre-loved uh, because in that industry, what I love the most is the story behind. So I've recently bought a pair of uh, Chanel sandals uh, for my new life in Hong Kong. And when I received them in the box, of course, I bought them on Vestia. When I received the box, the seller kept the, the receipts from the shop. And so I was able to see her name. I was able to see where she lives in the US on the East Coast and where she bought the shoes on the West Coast. And You it, like it, this? Yeah, the and it, it's, it. It's, it was very emotional for me to think about the, this pair of shoes being bought in the US, shipped uh, over to Europe for being controlled and then shipped to Hong Kong and then I I really was emotional and I went to the website and said to the lovely lady hey uh, thank you just uh, be aware your sen lovely sandals are on the ground of uh, the Hong Kong vibrant city today and uh, and I'm loving it I think it's very it adds um, emotion and a bit of uh, spirit into that uh, that consumption and fashion elements. Really love the story behind. It's quite fascinating because when we talk about luxury things, when you see luxury fashion in the pages of Vogue, for example, you don't think about the stories existing before you get your mitts on it. You think, when I get the item, I'm going to make my own story. It's not sold to have stories from previous owners, is it? So that's a different way of thinking. Yeah. And I think it's all about, at the end of the day, it's all about style. And how you, no matter if the piece is in season, few seasons old, or even a vintage one, it's all about how you style it, how you mix it, how you wear it, and, and what type of soul do you bring to the piece. So, yeah, at the end of the day, I, I don't know. I love these stories behind because there's less stories saying, hey, I stepped into this boutique and I bought this pair of shoes, fine. I mean, everybody does that, so... I'm more attached to people than traditional mm. way of shopping. Okay, so talking about tradition, how much do you think that ideas around pre-loved fashion or secondhand, if you like, have changed recently? So you started Vestier with your six co-founders, five yes. other co-founders yes. in 2009. Okay. Yeah. Since then, how have attitudes changed? I think consumers are embracing more and more this um, new way of buying fashion and luxury fashion because first, it's super convenient. Um, you can get your hands on products anytime, uh, anywhere, and products that are whether sold out already or super rare to find. And also, I think the major element is because now in this market, there is trust. We've built that trust element, which was lacking before. 
So when you were dealing on, on a C2C market, like consumer to consumer markets, it's fantastic, but you're lacking. I mean, if you... So what does that mean? Like um, buy eBay? Yeah, a buyer to buyer uh, marketplace. You might see a fantastic product out there, but you would never know if the, the seller is uh, as fantastic as the product. Meaning if you can trust that person to deliver, I mean, to ship you what is literally uh, out there and... And if it's, I mean, we all know people that have been fooled or we've heard a lot of stories about buying a beautiful luxury handbag and receiving a, I don't know, a crop thing. So we wanted to really disrupt that pre-loved and, and secondhand market by building a very strong trust element. And how we did that by building the whole vestiaire process, uh, which includes two steps of middlemanship if it's uh, the word even exists middlemanship so, yeah. i like it <laughs> so being a real middle middle womanship let's say and uh, let's say that between the buyers and the sellers the first step being the curation element so we didn't want to have everything out there we wanted just the best out of fashion so we wanted to be a photography of fashion meaning from small brands to very luxurious uh, brands. We wanted the cool pieces, the very desirable pieces to be sold on the platform and not absolutely everything because then it's the experience is a bit weird when you have to scroll through so many like crap stuff. So we wanted the best out of fashion and we wanted more specifically the buyers to be in full trust when they were purchasing especially uh, luxury products. We wanted them to be fully secured buying a Chanel or a Vuitton or an Hermes bag, making sure that someone else, a third party, uh, trustworthy, with all the expertise, was checking those products in between the buyer and the seller. Let me just rewind. Can you just go back to 2009 or before then and tell us a story about how Vestier began? So the story behind is... Um, started basically in, in different heads at the same time. Uh, my fellow partners, Sophie and Sébastien, were literally on the seller side. So they were opening up their wardrobes, uh, seeing a lot of nice pieces they were no longer wearing. And Sophie's background is in fashion. Exactly. She must have a glorious wardrobe. She I've seen her. stunning pieces. She's I mean, got she, good boots. Yeah. She uh, detoxed uh, quite a lot her wardrobe. So, so what she was looking in her wardrobe, thinking, "I got all this stuff, and I yeah, don't know what to yeah. do with it." And there was no real inspirational way to get rid of those uh, products. So Invite she, your friends around for a trunk show in your living room. Yeah, that was one Give option. Give them to an op shop, but, uh, but if it's Givenchy, probably don't want to. But then, yeah, when you have cool pieces and that are worth uh, a little bit of money, you also want to get the best out of it. So they were facing that problem. And on my side, I was more on the buying side because I I was with my two young uh, daughters um, at home doing a, enjoying a break um, to raise them. And at the same time, I really felt like maternity brought me the energy and also the, the desire to do something, become an entrepreneur at some point. So I was looking for different ideas and options. And I read a, an article actually in, uh, in France about the recessionistas, uh, which were the, these at the time fashion bloggers. 
starting to resell. We talked about this before and it made me laugh because I feel like I wrote a story about recessionistas. It was really? like a catchy term. I, it was obviously a long time ago. But yes, this idea of, I don't even remember it as being bloggers, but in your case, you, yeah, were, yeah. you were reading about these fashion bloggers who had all these fantastic clothes and then worked out they could make a bit of money on the yeah, side. Of and they were doing How it. How were they selling them? Through, on, through their blogs. And that was also the, the beauty and the pain points at the same time because... I mean, people that were following uh, genuinely those bloggers, they were, I mean, obviously passionate about their style. recessionists? Yeah. <laughs> because it was the recession and people yeah, needed it to was make an extra buck. Yeah, eight, nine. And, and then it was a clever way for them to engage their audience and to make a bit of money at the same time. But it was a real pain because you had to, as a buyer, you had to send an email saying, okay, I'm, I'm reserving that piece. Let me send you a check. Wait until the check has arrived, until she has cashed out the check. And it was like a real painful process. So I was like, that is interesting on, on a buying standpoint. So maybe the idea is simply bringing all those girls on the same platform because then you suddenly have way more supply and more choice and you can relate to their style and, and, and try to get inspiration out of that. So, When your brother told you that other people had the same idea, exactly, did you cry? I cried a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I knew this. Yeah, I did... Um, because I was in, in an entrepreneurial spirit already trying to knock um, and to pin down ideas, I knew some of my past ideas were a bit uh, rubbish. So I killed them very quickly. And this one, I was really passionate about that idea and really felt uh, very deeply that it could be something. It could grow into a, a real um, business. And again, my brother, who was a bit um, critical at the time, uh, I didn't want to share that, this one with him. And he very, by pure hazard, he sent me an email saying, hey, my friend Seb is going to launch this business soon. And so on. I was like, oh my God. No. <laughs> that is my idea. My idea. <laughs> Don't steal it. And at the same time, I felt like, why not? Because I was young, I mean, with few years of experience, but not much. And it was a big thing to go alone, to go out there and to build this company. So I said, OK, let's meet them. And so uh, your first idea, when you got together, your first idea, if you had to sell me, if I were your would-be backer, what would Vestia Collective be if you were trying to sell it at that time? Pitch it to me. So Vestiaire is the unique and very cool inspirational place uh, for you to be able to sell your pieces that are slipping into your wardrobe but also to find uh, on the other side of the, uh, the barrier to find amazing uh, products at very attractive prices. So it is a very simple idea and we are bringing uh, in the middle all you need to be in a very cool environment with fashion people and uh, in a very trusted way. So simple, but tough to realize. <laughs> but aspirational because the very. people that you're selling with are people who have fantastic wardrobes yeah, already. Yeah, yeah. Reliable. Because you can trust that these pieces have been vetted. Mm -hmm. Social, because yeah. you wanted to introduce this network side of it. Can you explain how that works? I mean, the whole social component of Vestiaire is we are almost, uh, we're not completely millennials, the six of us, but we are at the turning point of that new generation and we were almost raised and born with those social media. And for us, when we designed what was Vestiaire, it was obvious that it, it was a social component because we were relying on peers to buy and sell. So 
It was again about empowering fashion lovers to talk to each other. We were just building the platform behind and the services that were making the whole thing uh, sustainable and, uh, and reliable and trustworthy. So we wanted to empower them building all the tools. So we kind of picked the best out of uh, Facebook. I think Instagram was not even out there already. So we took the best uh, features on, on the market, which is I mean, basic stuff now, but... Uh, letting people comment about their piece, letting them follow each other, engage via likes and, uh, and wishes and a lot of um, cool little things that are really part of the experience and, and engage people way more than if it was just an e-commerce website. We know that Vestia has become a runaway success, that you have how many users? Six million users? Yes, six million members across, uh, I think it's 47 countries now. You've raised capital from the likes of Condé Nast. You've entered into the Asian market. All these things have happened now. Mm-hmm. But at the beginning, just started with your friend's stuff, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> Can started you tell out. <laughs> just basically got your own Gucci bag out of your yes, wardrobe and flocked yes, it. Yes, yes, exactly. We've, um, you know, we started a very, I mean, literally from scratch. I still have uh, pictures uh, of the six of us working in our own apartment so we were so Seb and Sophie were joined by uh, Enrique um, Alex Christian uh, and myself so the strength of that group is also because we we're all very different uh, half of the team is from the digital world half is from the fashion world and we all have a, a domain of expertise. So one was bringing the business development. Sophie was uh, bringing the fashion element. I was bringing the marketing communication. So we're all very um, different in that respect. But in the beginnings, you literally canvassed your friends. What yeah. do you have to sell? Yeah, we, we went out and, uh, and grabbed uh, all our friends. And we I think we gathered 3,000 products. It's quite uh, a lot. It's quite a lot, but it, it's very easy at the end of the day because we all have way more than we think. So at the time, I mean, I don't remember, but I think the average was 20 pieces by friend. So it was, then it becomes very, very quickly a, Where a big Where did you put it all? In my apartment. <laughs> I was almost divorcing. At the, no, no, kidding. But my husband was a, a bit pissed off with that uh, so many people uh, in and out. Uh, me, uh, we are having the little girls. Uh, in, How old were they? Oh, they were tiny. Uh, I don't know, two and three, something like this. So, I love a startup story. Yeah, it was really, uh, really exciting times. Uh, doing everything at the same time, uh, from photographies to uh, customer service to everything uh, from scratch uh, on the floor. I mean, it was really early days. I had my uh, little uh, mini, you know, the the car. And when we were live and, and doing our first sales, we had to pack uh, all the boxes in the mini and go to the post office. <laughs> it was really that an experience. That Everything. reminds me. Yeah, yeah, that we... reminds me of a cute thing. I was going to tell you that it reminded me originally when I read about this of Natalie Massenet's startup story with Netaporte when they ordered all these very luxurious boxes and then they had to store them in the bath in her Chelsea yeah. apartment <laughs> because they had no storage yeah. facility. But when you said that, I thought of Barbara Hula Nikki. Do you know her? No. She founded Bieber in the 60s and it was originally a postal order company which became the biggest London swinging London success story ever but it was first of all mail order and she made one design that was advertised in a London paper like the Daily Express one design it was something like a brown pinafore and 
the day that it went out in the paper, it was such a runaway success that thousands of people ordered this thing. And then her husband drove her around to the post office to pick up the orders and she thought there'd be... 10 and then she had, had to go and get him back with the car because oh it was my a sack God. full and they had like two sacks full of wow. orders from this thing but when you begin something you don't know if it's going to work with all the plans in the world you still don't know obviously you don't but you can I mean for me and I think for us six we were so passionate and so truly believing in it so it was your in your gut I mean it was a gut feeling I was massively convinced that There was a need. There was something that was uh, screaming, uh, yes, it's the right time, it's the right place, and, uh, and we should go for that, and we should aim to do something great and big, because I didn't see, I mean, I was, again, uh, in my previous uh, little ideas, I was very critical with myself, and always finding, you know, the, the element which was a bit cheeky, and that suddenly you don't believe in into the, the idea uh, so much. And there I was turning the idea in all the ways possible. And I was like, actually, there's, there's no negative things behind that. It's all very clear. It's all very in the now. And what people are, are or will be aiming to do uh, if we execute very well. So I was very, very, very convinced with, and I've never doubted actually uh, along the way. It's been eight years. Of course, there's a highs and lows, but um, It is still, uh, like the first day, uh, something that I'm pretty sure about, yeah, what it's going to become in terms of a proper industry. If listeners are thinking right now, I want to be a fashion entrepreneur, I've got an idea, what advice would you give them? First, don't be afraid, because if it's your at least your first company, um, you'll have to live with uh, this permanent doubt of saying, am I doing right? Am I doing wrong? Uh, should I do this before that? Uh, so I think it's being comfortable in that unknown world, new world, new situation, new everything. And if you don't like that, forget, uh, because <laughs> you will have to make uh, way more decisions than you've uh, ever done and, and you have to live with that. A second one is being a workaholic because it doesn't come by itself. So you're, you'll have to work very hard. And, and, and so your passion needs to be very strong to be able to cope with that because when you have I mean, personal life, babies, an husband or whatever. No one likes to hear the hard work yeah, bitch, do they? But Everyone always <laughs> likes to think of the end result and the glamour. No, but you don't have to make concessions if, if you really want to be successful and and the third and, and maybe actually the first one is uh, getting surrounded by the right people because I was lucky enough to find my partners that were very complementary you say to my skills and I don't believe in a one-man band thing making everything possible and beyond the the core team I mean the founding team I think the, the teams that we gathered along the way are are the real assets because, again, uh, you can be the most clever people in the world uh, if you don't have the right team beside you. Mm. So it's a people business before being uh, anything else. So It must be really nice when you begin something to have partners and to be able to bounce ideas off those other people and shoulder some of the strain. Like, I think being a one-woman band, which I am, sucks. <laughs> it's much nicer yeah. to be able to have that. It is. It is super comforting. I mean, you can unload your stress and, and again, as you said, bounce. But at the end of the day, when you're... 
I mean, you still feel super responsible because it's your, you have a field and you have to be responsible for that and you have to stand out for what you truly um, believe in. So, Before I was thinking of all the Ible words and I was like, okay, what was I thinking? What was I saying? What were my Ible words? I was like, reliable, reliable, <laughs> aspirational. What about sustainable? Because you just said responsible. So Vestia Collective is kind of inherently sustainable because it is all about this idea that you can give second, third, fourth lives to things. You're not using virgin resources to basically indulge your fashion addiction. <laughs> How important was responsible fashion or sustainable fashion to you all at the beginning of this process? And I guess the other part of that question is, how important is it now? I think it was completely... I mean, when I was telling you about Sophie and Seb opening their wardrobes, it was all about sustainability because they could have decided to, okay, I don't love those products or I don't wear those products. I'm going to just put them into the rubbish or I'm going to throw them away. And they didn't want that. So they wanted something else. They wanted the best for their products. But at the same time, again, budget constraint, they were not able to let them go for nothing. So it was a sustainable and a responsible question. and um, But is that more of a happy accident that it happens to be really great for the planet, but that isn't what was the core idea at the beginning, which is also fine, but how much of it was... Like, if you made a list at the beginning, all the things that we want to achieve, the social, the aspirational, all those things, solving the problem of the sleeping things in the <laughs> closet, was the environment ever on one of those lists? Yes, but in, not in the direct idea of saying, hey, we're going to save the planet. We were cautious not to throw away beautiful things. So it's, it was all about passing on, sharing again, the sharing economy thing, beautiful things. And it was something against waste. We hated the idea of wasting, yeah, beautiful, we all love luxury pieces or stylish pieces or designer pieces and and really cherish the, the work of those designers and I think it's a shame to mm. to waste those products mm. because if you don't love them now someone else will treasure them it was funny listening to you talk I was thinking the whole thing about waste is it's not very chic I mean I know it's a cliche but we are here in Paris and when you think about French style whether it's food or architecture or loving life or clothes you always think about what's chic. <laughs> That's the great French export, isn't it? And waste is not very chic. Buying cheap rubbish you don't want is not very chic. Yeah. I mean, maybe it wasn't about... I'm putting words in your mouth, but these conversations around sustainability are quite new. I never knew what that word was, if it even was a word in the fashion context, until I started writing about it, which was only three or four years ago. But the idea of waste being a bad idea, that's common sense. Yeah, it is common sense. And, uh, and again, we... I think we understood that luxury products, because they are good quality and they have a value across time. I mean, a beautiful bag will hold its value across time because there's no point. I mean, it's not a disposable uh, product. And we understood that it, ha it holds also its value across users because... As I told you about my shoes, I'm even more proud to wear someone else's shoes because... They have something, an additional soul. So, and that was my point of view when I was, uh, I had the idea. I was like, 
yes, it's even cooler to buy something from a girl that I admire or that I just simply love her style. It's even, yeah, more interesting than just going out in a shop and, uh, and picking what's on the rail. So, yeah, it was this mix of, uh, of elements that kind of built the whole idea and, and uh, become a very sustainable business. Your first thing you ever sold, or one of them. Yeah, my Gucci bag. <laughs> so that was the a first thing that few. was ever sold on the site. Every, yeah, and it was a like those uh, magic moments where you say, "This is a sign." <laughs> I was sure it was a real, um, a real winner ID and so on. And yeah, it started very. What was that bag? Oh my God! It was. Uh, I wouldn't know how to describe it. Um, it was actually a, a, a bag that my husband gifted to me. He picked one of the worst bag I think in the season, and I had to exchange it for something I, I preferred. So <laughs> that was not the original. That was my choice uh, after all, and I loved it. But then I kind of had to fill the the very first inventory of. Um, of, of the site so everybody kind of you did sacrifice yeah, that bag yeah, exactly. to the success that was a beautiful um, black uh, how do you say almost tote-ish uh, shape bag uh, with the Gucci logo it was very cool but bags are interesting because bags hold a lot more value as compared to apparel so I think that do you say it's something like can be 75% of exactly retail yeah, value yeah, yeah it's around the average is around 70 75 yeah so a bag is a good investment very good investment depending on the right one exactly you have to pick uh, the uh, the best ones and uh, and i think the the advice here is to be whether to go the safe route uh, buying the iconics basic colors or a beautiful black or uh, navy blue or something like very simple and chic that will always 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 be having a high demand in france or going the very uh, connoisseur route and, and, and having the rare or, or very desirable bag from the season that has been uh, produced in very small quantities and then the price will skyrocket because then there's uh, so much demand and, uh, and almost no offer. So. so what advice would you give then to potential sellers on the site who are maybe new to it? So be true uh, with your wardrobe. I think the first thing, uh, one thing I've experienced and I love to do is with your clothes, at least. Um, at the beginning of the season, you put all the hangers in the sa- on the same side, facing, uh, let's say, the, the left uh, side of your wardrobe. And then every time you wear something, you turn your hanger on the right side. And wait until the end of the season and then you will clearly see what you've been wearing and what has been laying here for months and months without having haven't been worn. It's fascinating. And it's simple and very easy. Everybody can and do I it. Get, can yeah. we actually give listeners a challenge to maybe do this and just see what the results are? Because I've actually heard a similar thing before that someone was doing when they were looking at how much they hoarded, what they really wore in their closet, how they might detox. And then, of course, at the end of the season or the end of the year, You're facing no one the has truth. turned the hangers around. <laughs> I mean, half the stuff. What are the stats? You must have some about what the average person wears in the wardrobe. I think it's 40% of your wardrobe that you're not wearing in the season. So, 
what's the point holding into into that? And you, but it's quite confronting to see all those things in there that you didn't turn the hangers yes. around. Yes, and uh, I'm enjoying the feeling of letting go things. I mean, I still have piles uh, in Hong Kong to be sold. And I think it's it's part of the journey. I love selling as much as I love buying because then suddenly you'll... You'll make space. Uh, you won't face those products that are dying and lying in your wardrobe every single day. You're and passing them on to someone else. Yeah. So you actually are engaging in a bit of guilt-free shopping. Of course. And then you get money back to shop on to the new things. And uh, no, it's pretty. Um, it's a very, very exciting uh, experience to be to become a seller. At least. So I love that advice for the seller. Yeah. What's your advice for the buyer? Buyer. I would say... Maybe they should do that too to see if they really need it. Yeah. <laughs> no, but by your side, I mean, remember one thing is when you're talking about secondhand, there's no second chance, uh, meaning every single product is unique on the website. So if you spot something that you really love or you were looking for or you feel passionate about, you might lose it very quickly because products are selling super, super fast. And I've I've been frustrated uh, missing uh, stuff that I've spotted there. It's okay, maybe tomorrow. Da, 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 no, not now. I don't have time. And actually, they're gone. But I always like that sleep on it principle, where yeah. if you really want something, you will find out if you really, really want it by not getting it today and just seeing if you really want it yeah. next week. I'm a bit like you on, <laughs> on normal website, but it's a, a real risk on Vestia because uh, you might wake up with uh, a sold out uh, product in front of you, but. Uh, yeah, and then, um, I don't know, let your... I mean, the way I shop on Vestia is I shop again, true to my the founding story, I shop through people and girls that I love. I love their style, so literally I will so browse... So you can kind of follow a seller. Exactly. I browse... The way I do it is I browse uh, the new pieces of the day. I will find something interesting, but the, immediately I will try to know who's behind so who is the seller, where is she, in which country is she um, based, what other pieces she's, uh, she's selling. And so by looking at all her details, I'm figuring out her style and uh, what she looks like and so on. And then I'm relating to that style and, uh, and to her profile. So I will engage with her and communicate with her and then I'll purchase something. So it's something in between the person and the products and not only product-driven. We started talking about how you worked in your mother's shops mm -hmm. and now you're working in the future of retail. Do you still go to old-fashioned traditional shops? Barely. Don't you? Barely, no. Too busy, eh? Well, you don't need yes, to. You've got a wardrobe out the back. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone in this building is wearing things from Vestio. <laughs> no, I think it's... Uh, I mean, of course, I love shopping and I think there's amazing shops out there, but... I don't have time first, and I'm always frustrated by the small selection. Uh, when you have, I mean, so many options online to your fingertips, like, what's the point seeing uh, a maximum 50 piece? Yes, the merchandising is superb. Yes, you can try, you can feel. But I know the brands well enough to know what's behind and, I mean, have a good feel of the product, and I want choice. I want to be able to browse uh, through, I don't know, if I want a red uh, sweater, I want to have a, a 200 red sweater to choose from. So that's the way I shop and unfortunately it doesn't appeal to a retail experience. So. so what would you say is the future of shopping 
obviously you're working in it, but what if you had to use your crystal ball to say, in eight years' time from now, where do you think we're going to be? Well, I think there's a... I mean, the whole industry is, is raising that question right now. Um, You'd be rich if you knew that. Yeah, exactly. I think it's uh, retail is wondering uh, what is digital going to become. I mean, digital is right now 8% of the sales and in 2025, it's going to be 25%. So there's a massive growth uh, ahead and retailers are, are freaking out. But at the same time, the consumer is... It's all about the experience. So whether it's online, I mean, no one is purely digital or purely retail. It's about both. Uh, it's about convenience. It's about where you are, uh, what you need, when do you need it, and what is the easiest or the more, I don't know, inspirational way of, of having that product. So I think it's embracing this, uh, now we call it in marketing, O2O, so online to offline or offline to online. O2O. O2O. I've never heard it. That's the new buzzword. I'm going to say it. <laughs> O2O. When I said T- C to C. <laughs> so you yeah, embrace that world. And uh, yeah, it's all about finding this 360 experience for consumers to, I don't know, buy online, uh, return to the shop or reserve in the shop and be sent to your house. So it's embracing both retail and online in a very seamless and, uh, and genuine way. Just finally, as the mother of two young daughters, how do you think fashion generally can be a positive influence? Is it about giving back? Is it about, what is it? I mean, for me, I always want it to be about saving the planet. How do you see fashion as being powerful? In many ways, I think it's, um, if I step into the shoes of uh, the mother that I am, I am, I think it's um, young age, my girls being 10 and 12, it's a very cool way to empower young girls in a, in a way they kind of through fashion can build their confidence and I think even when you're older it's it's all about that little extra confidence that you can get through products through fashion that will help you conquer the world and how you feel being a woman when you're wearing those heels and how I mean how much power sometimes a simple pair of shoes can bring to you So that's something really deeply connected to who we are. Um, So I love this combination of various elements because, yes, some guys, when they are asking, what are you doing? I work in the fashion industry. (laughs) You always look like, I mean, they have very stupid uh, images in mind, but you can be a real business uh, woman uh, in that industry, uh, hopefully. Thank you. Thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. De rien, avec plaisir. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. 
Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you. Because I love you.